Well, yesterday marked two years since I officially started at Lakeside, and so I was spending some time thinking about all the things that, all the things that we've done and all the different experiences that I've had in, in that time since we moved to Northeast Wisconsin. And I remember a couple years ago, my grandpa and my parents, they came up for Thanksgiving uh, just a couple months after my family had moved here, and my grandpa gets out of the car after a long trip, and the first thing he says to me is not, hello, or so good to see you, or we've missed you so much. The first thing he says to me is, have you got a shovel yet? That's the first thing he said. I'm like, no, no, not yet. He's like, you, you need one. It's going to snow. You better get a shovel. I'm like, it's going to be okay, Papa. Good to see you too. And, and our thought was, there's forecasts. And so when you see snow in the forecast, you go to the store, you get a shovel, and you take it home, and, and you'll be fine. And then December came, and it was a very mild December. And everybody was like, just wait, you know, just wait. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. And then finally, January rolled around, and it's Wisconsin. So it decided it was going to start snowing. And we saw the first big snow forecast, and we decided we would, I, that I would go to the store and get a shovel. Apparently, everyone else in Kiwani and Door County had the same idea because there wasn't a single shovel that I could find. And so I just decided, you know what? Forecasters are wrong a lot of times. They're wrong a lot of times. They make all kinds of predictions that don't come true. I'm sure we'll be fine. And so I, I went home empty-handed, and Brooke's like, hey, did you get a shovel? And I'm like, we don't, we don't have a shovel, but it's just once. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. The next morning as she was, taking, she was taking our oldest to school, I hear a shriek, and I get up, and when she opened the apartment door, the snow just started cascading into the foyer area, and her shoes were now completely wet, all because, all because I never took the time to get the shovel, even though we knew that snow was on its way. There are certain things in life you can just guarantee are going to happen. You can just guarantee they're going to happen. It's going to snow in Wisconsin. You're going to need money as soon as you spent the last of your money and you think you're fine on credit cards. You're going to need cash. You're going to hit a toll booth that you did not expect to hit. And if you don't have cash, then they're going to give you a ticket and it's going to be double the toll and you're going to have to take a day out of your vacation to go pay the toll. Sorry, those are just scars that I still remember from, from that story in my life as well. But there are just certain things that you can count on happening in life. They're just guaranteed. And this morning we're going to look at some teachings of Jesus. So if you have your phones or your tablets, if you join us in Luke 17, that's where we're going to, that's where we're going to explore today. Luke 17, 1 through 10 on your phones or your tablets. You can follow along there. We're going to explore some certainties that Jesus tells us we can expect. And we're also going to see an interesting way that Jesus communicates. And he's going to talk about some things that don't seem to tie together on their face. It doesn't seem like these are, these are all things that tie together. And it also seems like Jesus is rather harsh about something. But it's going to be interesting as we dive in and we see what Jesus is talking about in Luke 17, 1 to 10. Thank you so much for joining us. And we start in verse 1 where we read these words. And he said to his disciples, and Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. And Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure 
to come. And the first thing we see this morning is that we have a sympathetic Savior. We have a sympathetic Savior. We have a Savior who understands that all of us are going to experience things that try to steal our attention. We're all going to experience things that try to steal our focus and steal our gaze and turn us away from following Jesus into doing things that we all want to do even though they're things we know that God has called us not to do. And yet, in the midst of that, we have a sympathetic Savior who understands the fact that we are going to experience these things. We're all going to experience these things. And what's interesting is sometimes we experience temptation that is so dark and so warped and and just something we're so ashamed about that rather than talk to God about it, we just try to bury it. And we just try to keep it within ourselves because we're so embarrassed by it. We're so ashamed by it. It's so dark. It's so warped. We don't want anyone to know. And we feel, we feel weird about even talking to God about it. Never mind the fact that God is all-knowing and he already knows everything that we're experiencing and thinking anyway. But rather than talk to him about it or rather than find one or two people that we can trust who love Jesus and have a vested interest in our lives as well that we could go to and we could share those things with them as well, we bottle it in and we hold it in. And the very first thing we see today is that we have a sympathetic Savior. Jesus himself was tempted. Jesus himself, during a time of of deep, deep spiritual journey while he was fasting and praying for a number of days, the devil came and he tried to tempt Jesus. So Jesus understands our temptation. He understands the thought process that goes through all of our minds. And when you're tempted, I want to encourage you, don't feel like you have to walk through it alone. Don't feel like you have to walk through temptation alone. Find a couple people who love you and who love Jesus in the same way that you do and who can listen and pray for you and walk through that journey with you. And certainly, whatever you do, whatever you do, Communicate with God during that time. None of it's going to catch God by surprise. In fact, God already knows the outcome. He already knows what you're going to choose to do, and he loves you in spite of any of that. But God loves you so that you're never going to face something that is too dark or too warped or too messed up or anything else. And so you need to give yourself the freedom, whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're struggling with, to be able to to take that to God And to a couple other people that you really trust, who love you, have a vested interest in your life, and who have a deep love for Jesus as well. But don't feel like you have to walk through life isolated and alone, no matter how warped and messed up it is, because it's true for all of us. All of us have things in our lives that we don't want other people to know. All of us deal with thoughts that we would hate for everybody to find out, but certainly at the bare minimum, never feel like they're too warped or too messed up for you to confess those to God and work through that journey on your relationship with God. And then he continues the thought in the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 when he says, But woe to the one through whom they come. 
It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. And right after we see the sympathetic nature of our Savior, we see the justice of God. And the, the sympathy is contrasted now with this justice that God demands because he is a holy God and he is a perfect God. And he says, for the one for whom those temptations come through him, it would be better if he never even existed. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to tempt one of these little ones and cause them to stumble. This is the, this is the picture that we get of the justice of God. This is the wrath of God that we see on display. That it would be better that a couple hundred pound stone be tied around his neck. He'd be thrown off a cliff into the sea and have to drown. Now, I don't know what you've thought up in your mind of the worst possible ways to die, and I know you have because we all do it, but this has got to be on everybody's top 10 list right here. Having a couple hundred pounds stone tied around your neck, you're thrown off a cliff, and now you have to face drowning as well. There's nobody who's signing up for this, and if this doesn't crack your top 10 Maybe therapy. Okay, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. This is a really, really warped way for somebody to go. And Jesus says it would be better for them to experience that than what they're going to experience from me because of what they have caused. We have a sympathetic Savior. But God is holy and He is perfect and He demands justice. And that we see. And then, what does this mean for us? Well, Jesus conquers that when he keeps going in verse 3. Pay attention to yourselves if your brother sins. Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So what's our response to all of this? What's our response to the fact that we are going to be tempted? What's our response to the fact that there are going to be times where we fall short of, of God's standard and we, we fall prey to that temptation? Well, the very first thing we have to do is to pay attention to ourselves. Pay attention to yourself. That is the very first thing that we are called to do, is worry about yourself. We all have a predisposition to love to look at other people instead of ourselves. It's always easier to look out windows than it is to look into mirrors. Because when we look out windows, we can see the faults and we can see the flaws of everyone and they come very easily and we notice them immediately and it's very easy for us to look out into somebody else's life and point out all the flaws and all the things that they should have done differently and how their life's a mess but it's really uncomfortable when we have to look into a mirror and stare back at ourselves and think through all the things that we've done wrong all the ways that we haven't measured up, all the faults and the flaws that we have. Jesus says, the very first thing you need to do, knowing that you're going to face temptations of all kinds, the very first thing you need to do is worry about you. You worry about you. That's the first step. Worry about yourself. Now, what happens after our focus is taken off everybody else 
and our focus is placed on ourselves. Then what happens? Well, Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So we worry about ourselves. We're not actively looking out and trying to see how everybody else's life falls short and how everybody else has problems in their life. We worry first and foremost about ourselves. That is the first step we take. But even when we're worried about ourselves, even when we're worried about ourselves, when we notice that other people's lives are out of bounds, when it becomes so obvious and so apparent to us, what is the response that we're to take? We call them on it. We call them on it. That's what, that's what rebuking is. We call them on it. We tell somebody, your life's out of balance. This is going on in your life, and this shouldn't be going on in your life, and you need to fix this. Now, we live in a time and in a society that would tell you that love is blind acceptance, that love is blind acceptance, that in order to love somebody, you have to accept whatever they do, and you have to be fine with whatever they choose to do, and nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Love is not blind acceptance at all. What love actually is, is it's seeing somebody who's going down a dangerous path and it's telling them you're on a path that is headed for destruction. That is ultimately what love requires us to do. Not to just say, do whatever you want and live with the consequences. It calls us, love calls us to be willing to have hard conversations. And it calls us to be willing to pour into other people's lives. And so when you're focused on yourself, when you still, after being focused on yourself, still see the sin of somebody else, call them on it. Understanding that love is not blind acceptance of everything that someone does. And then what's the result? What's the result? You've called somebody on on their sin. You've, You've taken the time to go to them and do this privately. You don't. You don't stand up and yell. You don't point your finger. I mean, rebuking now has, has gotten such a negative connotation because, one, it's unpleasant, but, two, because of the methods and means and which has been carried out by so many people. You don't make an example of somebody. You don't shout at them in public. You don't post it on social media. You go to them privately, not with an attitude of, let me tell you everything that's wrong in your life, but with humility being rooted in Scripture, not not in what you personally feel, but what in Scripture clearly conveys, and you go to them and you say, I'm concerned about you, and here's why I'm concerned about you. That is what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. And what is the what is the hopeful response to this? That they would understand that they would understand that their life is out of balance for the way that God wants them to live their life, and they would make a correction as a result. That is is what repentance is. Repentance is basically when we react to sin in the same way that God reacts to sin. That is repentance. And when somebody does that, we are called to forgive them. We are called to forgive them. Now, what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? Understand that forgiveness has to do with the past. Forgiveness has to do with the past. It's not actively holding something against someone. Forgiveness is the choice to not actively hold something against someone. You have been wronged, and the choice that you make when you forgive is you decide, I'm going to stop carrying this. I'm going to stop carrying this. I'm going to quit picking up the baggage of how this person wronged me every single day and carrying it 
through my day. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is letting go. It's not actively holding on to somebody wronging you in the past. And Jesus says, when you've rebuked somebody, you need to forgive them. When you've rebuked somebody and they see that they've been wrong, you now need to forgive them. You need to let it go. But how many times? Because that's all our question, is how many times do I have to let something go? Well, Jesus answers that question. Next, in verses 4. In verse 4, excuse me. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Did you catch that? If he sins against you seven times in one day, and seven times comes to you and says, I repent, you must Forgive him. Now, all of us, all of us, by time seven, are really annoyed. I mean, in fact, even if it's a three-year-old, on time seven, you're like, I don't know why it's not sinking in. What are you not getting here? But if it's somebody older than the three-year-old, you're just scratching your head and like, where is the disconnect? What's wrong with you? And God's point, Jesus' point is this. That we, who have received forgiveness from God, we must be willing to forgive. This is incredibly hopeful. It's incredibly challenging when we need to be the issuers of forgiveness. When we've been the ones who've been wronged, this is incredibly challenging. And the idea to forgive somebody once is difficult. And then you're telling me, Jesus, if they do the same thing seven times in one day, I'm obligated to forgive them seven times? See, when we're the issuers of forgiveness, this is a really hard concept. But when we're indebted and we need forgiveness, there's nothing more hopeful than this. For the addict who's sworn time and time again. This is the last time. That the substance would never again have control over them. And time and time again they failed. For the drunk who's let down their family. And declared that this is it, this is it. But time and time again they find themselves the bar for the person who can't even remember intimacy and in just a desperate moment picks up the smartphone it's just a couple clicks and they've sworn time and time again that they would not allow this to rule their life and yet there it is and it's so appealing and it's right there and the lie is nobody's ever going to know for the addict, for the person who's desperate, for whatever your struggle is, the hope for you is that on the seventh time you fail, God forgives you. On the 70th time you fail, God forgives you. On the 700th time you fail, God forgives you. On the 7,000th time you fail, God forgives you. On the 7 millionth time you fail, God still forgives you. 
That's the hope that we have as people who follow Jesus. So does that mean we just quit the struggle and just say, well, God's going to forget? No. No. In fact, this is all the more reason we should struggle. Because we serve a God who loves us. A sympathetic Savior who said, no, that temptation is coming your way. But we also serve a just God and a God of wrath and a God who says very clearly, there is a penalty for sin. So what's the response to all of this? Well, Luke continues, and the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. I have a mustard seed right here. I know you can barely see it. First service, didn't get to see it because it was buried in my pocket with some pocket lint and I couldn't find it. So I threw out the pocket lint and found another mustard seed. And there you go. Two millimeters. It's two millimeters. You know, a tree from a seed this size, a mustard tree from a seed this size, a two millimeter seed, can grow anywhere between six and 20 feet. A tree from a seed this size can grow anywhere from 6 to 20 feet. So what, what does this mean? And what's Jesus getting at? And what are all the implications of this? Well, first, we don't have to be convinced that our faith is enormous in order to have a large impact. We don't have to be convinced that our faith is enormous in order for us to have a large impact. I mean, if a tree can grow 6 to 20 feet from a seed this small, a 2-millimeter seed, it is incredible what God can do with our faith because of some supernatural New Age idea that, that there's some mystical like, thing about our faith. No, but because of how great and grand our God is, that He chooses to use us and do things through us. And sometimes in the areas of spirituality, we put these unrealistic expectations upon ourselves that are unattainable. And instead of doing that, we have an invite here. Instead of doing that, we have an invite here. This is a message of hope to us. And that message of hope is that a seemingly tiny amount of faith can make a massive difference. A seemingly tiny amount of faith can make a massive difference. How much difference? Well, a mustard seed, those two millimeters. Jesus says, if you had faith that was two millimeters in size, you could say to this mulberry tree, which in the region would grow 30 feet tall and have a span of 35 feet wide. That your two millimeters of faith could tell a tree that is 30 feet tall and 35 feet wide to be uprooted. And it would listen to you. That's the power 
of our faith in God. So we have this idea that we're going to be tempted. And this idea that we need to focus on ourselves and invest in others and help them in their journey. And when they wrong us, forgive them. And even a little bit of faith can make a huge difference. And then Jesus is about to do something in this conversation that seemingly changes the whole dynamic. And it seems rather harsh if we're being honest. Where he draws an analogy for us here in verse 7, where 7 through 9, where it says this, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep Say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So Jesus draws this analogy for us. And he says, if you had a servant who was out in the field working all day, working with the sheep, He's out working in the sheep. And then it's dinner time. Would you summon him and say, hey, come on in and have a seat at the table? No. No. What you would do is you would say to him, come on in, wash your hands, change your clothes because you stink, because you've been out in the field all day working with the sheep, and I don't want to smell you while I eat my dinner, and then serve me dinner. Bring me dinner and bring me a drink. And then after I'm great and after you've cleaned everything up and taken care of everything, then when the job is all done and I've been dismissed, then you can eat and drink. Like, man, what a jerk. That's really harsh. And it forces us to ask a question. Do you reward someone for meeting expectations? Do you reward someone for meeting expectations? In the personally house right now, there's a big transition going on. We're moving away from a chore chart where people got stickers. People were my kids. It's not like I gave Brooke stickers for doing like, things around the house. Like, you did a great job, honey. Here's your sticker. No, we're our kids. We're transitioning away from a chore chart where our kids got stickers. Uh, to more of an allowance-based job system. And a couple of days ago, I was having this conversation trying to prepare my kids for this transition with my oldest son. And I said, there are just some expectations of you living at the house that you need to do and you're not going to be, you're not going to be compensated for, such as making your bed. And he's like, but I used to get stickers for making my bed. And I'm like, great, but you live here rent-free. And now that's just an expectation of you having a, house, having a room in the house rent-free. That the expectation is you're going to make your bed and you're going to clean your room. And you're not getting paid for that. That is just the expectation that you now have for living at the house. Now, some of you might think, wow, I'm a monster. And maybe I am. But you've got to understand, I never got a participation trophy in Little League. I missed that era by four or five years. And there were a lot of years I would have loved to end Little League with a trophy. But I didn't. So... Sorry, kids, but this is just the rain we're going to have at the Pursley house now. So there, I'm just in the school. That there's expectations, 
and you don't reward for expectations. Now, there's a huge debate in this right now in, in academia and education circles of whether or not you should reward students for doing what's expected. And if you think I'm going to weigh in on that, you're crazy. Because here's what, I, here's what I know about education right now. I don't envy you at all. Whether you work at a school as a teacher or a teacher's aide or, or another role, any role at a school, or whether you're making the decision to home educate, my heart goes out to you. There's, it's always an impossible task. But right now, with all the uncertainty and all the things that are unknown and so many variables at play, I can't even begin to understand or even wrap my head around all the challenges and all the things that you're going to be experiencing. And as a church, what we want to do is we want to come alongside you and we just want to, we want to lift you up. So if you would do me a favor, if, if you work in, work in education, whether that's, whether that's a home education or, or whether school, you work in a school in, in any type of capacity, we want to, we want to lift you up in prayer as a church. So if you would please send us an email this week at info at lakeside-church.com. Again, that address is info at lakeside-church.com. We want to be praying for you. We want to be praying for for all the unknowns and all the variables that you're going to encounter this year with so much uncertainty in the world. We want to be praying for your impact that you can have with your coworkers or, or with your students or if you're home educating with your kids. And so we just want to lift you up as a staff. We want to lift you up in prayer. And so if you would just send us an email on when your first day is, we will commit to praying with you uh, for that first day and then periodically throughout the course of the year. We just want to continue to uplift you in prayer, but our hearts go out to you, and we know the job that you are facing is not an easy one, and as a church, we just want to rally around you and support you. So if you would please just send us that email at info at lakeside-church.com. We want to pray with you for the upcoming year and all that you're going to experience and all that you're going to face. So, so please do that. Jesus just says, you don't, re- you don't reward for the expectations. He asked the question. And then verse 10, where he wraps this all up, says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Here's the reality. God has expectations for those who follow him. God has expectations for those who follow him. I want to encourage you that if you find yourself at a place where you're frustrated in life and there's a lot of uncertainty and and there's all these things that are weighing on your mind right now and all these things that you're going through, I want to encourage you to do something. I want you to stop focusing on your own expectations. Stop focusing on your own expectations and focus on fulfilling the expectations that God has for you. Stop focusing and worrying about all of your own expectations and start focusing and worrying on the expectations that God has for you and fulfill those expectations in your life. What are those expectations? Well, we've just seen it. That you're human and you're going to face temptation. And there are going to be things that you're going to want to do because they feel good and they look good and they sound good, but you know they go contrary to God's design for your life. And you need to resist those things even though they look good and they sound good and they feel good. 
you need to instead choose to honor God with your life. You need to focus on yourself. Stop looking out the window and spend more time looking in the mirror and work on yourself and growing closer to Jesus. And when people wrong you, and they will, forgive them. Show them why they're wrong if they don't understand. Show them why they're wrong. Sometimes if they love Jesus, they'll get it themselves and they'll just skip the step where you need to rebuke them because they already understand what they've done and they come to you for forgiveness. You forgive them. Then it's over. Let go. Let go of the baggage. Let it go. And if they do it again, you forgive them again. And if they do it again, you forgive them again. Because God's forgiven us. And we are called to forgive. That we would be people who hold our faith and understand that even with small, seemingly minuscule amounts of faith, that God can take that and accomplish incredible things that are beyond what we can even imagine because of how great and powerful our God is. And that we are called to serve Him. Not feeling like we need rewards, but understanding that God has given us all passions and talents and abilities and gifts that we need to utilize for His glory. Not receiving anything, but understanding it is our privilege to do God's work. People ask all the time, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? What does God want me to do? I can tell you exactly what God's will for your life is. I can tell you the exact will that God has for your life. You ready? Here it is. Love God and love others. The rest will take care of itself. Love God and love others. How do we do that? By surrendering our desires to God's desires for us. By focusing on growing closer to Jesus. By loving people enough to show them when they're wrong. And forgiving them when they have been wrong. And forgiving them again if we need to forgive them again. and taking our faith and allowing God to do incredible things through it. And then serving Him. 
That's God's will for your life and my life. And that is who we've been called to be. God, I pray that we would be people who love you. I pray for the person here who's struggling. Who's found themselves in a situation they swore time and again they were over with. And they just can't seem to break free. I pray, God, that you would help them break out. And I pray that as the enemy comes and tries to discourage them and tries to convince them that they've failed too many times to still be loved by you, you would just remind them of your goodness and your grace and your forgiveness. I pray for the person who's here who's struggling to forgive someone else. And I pray, God, that you would soberly remind them in their hearts of the forgiveness they've experienced from you. And you would help them let go and forgive the person who wronged them. God, I pray that we would impact people's lives in our region with the hope of Jesus. And I pray for every educator, whether that's at home or at school or in some other setting, that you would remind them of the impact that they can have. So God, I pray that they would grow closer to you, and I pray that they would find ways to point their students and their parents closer to you. them wisdom with so many uncertainties. And I pray, God, that this would be a place where we live these things out, where we love you and each other well. And we would see lives changed as a result. I ask you to work, God, in your son, Jesus' name we pray.